I'm, I would imagine everybody's out nor up north and uh, so forth. So we're here. So, yeah, me too one day. So yeah, do it next. Yeah, as a church, there you go. Uh, all right, Romans 8, if you will, verse 31, Romans 8. We're going to start reading here in verse 31, get, get back here into the end of, uh, end of uh, the section here. Uh, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, I'm sorry, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that, that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. This section here, we're just going to, again, jump back into uh, coming out of verse 31, the, that question it is the issue, really. What shall we then say to these things? The, these things, obviously the context, the suffering, the issue of there in verse 28, 29, and 30, specifically of us participating in the eternal purpose of, of God. How then do we react to, uh, to the events of life? Paul here is going to begin to demonstrate that God is for us but not just for us in a cheerleader manner, but he's fully for us. He's, he is, he, he's vested not only in our past, if you'll notice the spared not his son, and then verse 34, it is Christ that died, not only in the past, but also in our future. And in, in the future, that issue of his purpose, the end of verse 28 there, now we're going to begin to learn in our identity and who we are in Christ, the issue here of he's also fully vested in our present life. So what we're going to see in the details here, get, we're going to get down in the weeds a little bit, is that in the past he's fully vested, he's fully vested in our future, and he's fully vested in our present. So what Paul does is he pulls from our past. And he says, if you, you, you want to see the measure of how he is so fully in, interested in you now, let's look to the past. So if you, because he's already proven to us he's for us in the past, he's going to do it out there in the future. And by, by the way, we believe him when he says he's for us in the past. We believe him when he says he's for us in the future, so then why don't we believe him when, when he says he's for us now? And Paul's going to begin to work in and to uh, crystallize, is the word I used last week, in our thinking, the details here. And uh, what he's already done for us in the past is proof of what he's doing for us today. If you think about what Paul's going to do, look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation. And he, in verse 35 to 39, he gives two sets of lists. Now, he gives these lists, and our flesh that isn't going to like the list, okay? 
how does our, and you've got to kind of think about this from our flesh point of view. Shall tribulation, how does our flesh respond to tribulation? It doesn't like it. So what does our flesh do? It avoids it as much as possible. Our natural reaction, the natural resistance to tribulation, famine, uh, I'm sorry, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. So our natural reaction to that is to resist it. Okay? By the way, verse 36, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. When we look at that verse, hopefully next week, who views us as sheep for the slaughter? Well, the adversary does. God's view is verse 37. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You see, the adversary views us as sheep for the slaughter. Sometimes we view ourselves that way as well. But God's view is, hey, you're more than a conqueror. Then he gives another list, verse 38 and 39. And here, here's God's view. This should be our view. And by the way, he brings in events. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature. He brings in this list of all these other things going on. Is it warm in here to you guys? A little bit? All right, well, maybe Ricky can look at the air. Yeah. Um, it, it just I see Emily fanning, and, and it just kind of felt warm. But anyway... These, the, the list here, what the list does in verse 38 and 39 is that there, any conceivable enemy is no match for the declaration of verse 37 that we're more than conquerors. If you can think of anything to come up in life, guess what? It isn't a match for God's viewpoint. So before we get into that... <laughs> all of that, then let's go back up to verse 31 and get into some details here that Paul, again, is driving into, he's putting into our thinking. And before we give into all of the, all that life throws at us, all that the adversary is going to come and throw at us, before we adopt our natural reaction, our human viewpoint, let's adopt the divine perspective. Let's have in our inner man the proper thinking about this, the proper thought process. So verse 31, what do you say to these things? What's going to happen? Do you trust God about what he tells us that he did for us in the past? Well, yes. Do we trust God that what he tells us he's going to do for us in the future? Yes. Then let's trust him when he talks to us about what he's doing for us today in the present. Because when life throws the curveball, what happens? We don't think about, we think about like Esau did. Hey, just give me the bowl of beans. Let me feed me now. I don't worry about the future. The future will fix itself. And that's no, that's the, the improper thought process. So, verse 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? Paul introduces now two things to us. He introduces to us a for us doctrine, and then he introduces an against us challenge. 
So we have uh, God is for us. Here's the information there. And then he says, yeah, but don't forget there's an adversary that don't like it. And against us. So he works through, and by the way, we're not going to take the time, but you can run through all of Paul's epistles and find for us, for us, for us, for us. And then real close will be against us, against us. <laughs> it's right there because the adversary who, is, who opposes what God's doing, he's going to show up. And uh, we are not to be victimized. We're not to be the victim, but rather we're to live victorious. And that's what we, I said last time. We're in the second section. We're coming to the end. The first section ends in Romans 5 with victory. Here, victory. Chapter 11, victory. Chapter 16, victory. Why? Because the doctrine's design is to have you live in victory. So what Paul's going to crystallize and get into us is some for us truth and against us challenges here. And uh, he, he's going to bring into our thinking about, well, whatever happens in life, God wants you to succeed in and to be victorious. So when he says, Who, if God be for us, He's, again, he's not talking about a cheerleader, you know, rah, 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 you know. He's rather, he's talking about God being actively involved in our inner man. How he is actively involved in our inner man is that he's providing the necessary resources, the equipping that will enable us to be successful in the present. We are successful in the past. He took care of that. We will be in the future. He took care of that. So guess what? He will take care of now as well. So when we close this section here, we should never, you should never leave Romans 8 defeated. If you do that, you need to go back into Romans 6, 7, and 8 and go through it again. <laughs> you should leave victorious. So if God be for us, who can be against us? He's for us just as he was in the past when he developed his eternal purpose, established the issue of using the church, the body of Christ, to, uh, and, and making us participate. And if you're a member of the church, the body of Christ, you're going to participate in this heavenly plan that he has. But then who is against us? There is an adversary. There is, there is Satan and his minions, his ministers. We live in this present evil world. If you come over there to Ephesians 6, Ephesians chapter 6, and look at verse 12. Ephesians 6 and verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It's, you know, it's interesting he says high places. He doesn't say heavenly places. High places, those high ranks there. It's interesting. So we have an enemy. And when the enemy stands against us, come back there to Romans 8, when he opposes what we're doing, he... 
he's driving into our thinking that the enemy can never stop what God's purpose is. And that's the part, honestly, that in the day-to-day we forget because where do we focus? Right here. And we have to bring from here and we have to remember that. And that's really when he says who, 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 uh, who can be against us is he's talking about that adversary is going to come up and nail you. So what does he do in verse 32? Here's how you know that God is for you. Here's the details. Now, I, I gave you four of them last time and so forth, and, and that's what we're doing. But to demonstrate how intensely he's for us, here's the proof. What did God do that would tell me in the past, the measure of the, future, of the present is the past, what did he do? Verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Notice that verse. How much is God for us? He that did what? Spared not his own son. Think about that. Let that sink in. It doesn't say he that saved not his own son. It says spared not. And that issue of spared not, no mercy was shown. No restraint. God the Father, he literally allowed the full measure of his wrath against sin to be poured out on his son. He didn't spare him. He didn't say, okay, well, he's my son, so we're going to give him a 75% shock. No, he said we're going to give him 100%. He doesn't, he doesn't come in and say, let's hold back any of it. He says, no, full flow. Let it flow on him. No mercy. Uh, the verse over there when, Paul, when the Lord looks into that cup and without mixture, <laughs> he says, hey, the wrath of my indignation without mixture. Here it is. Bam. The same God that did that for the sins of humanity, where his, when his son was on the cross... Think about it. The father didn't have second thoughts. He didn't look for a loophole. Now, the Lord asked for a loophole in the moment, in the garden. We've looked at that three times. He did what? Hey, is there any way this can pass? Three times. Any way this can pass? Any way? And before the, the father could respond, what's he say? Not my will, but thy will be done. Okay? But the father spared not his own son. He... He didn't have second thoughts. He wasn't looking for loopholes. He wasn't looking for a provision. Remember the Lord on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he moved the charge against Israel from murder to manslaughter that claimed the law of ignorance for him. When he does that, he's not doing that. The that was the son doing that. The father says, nail him, get him, full force. Because that's what needs to be done. Because the Godhead, can't, they can't overlook transgression. They can't overlook sin. Sin has to be dealt with. The justice of God, the righteousness of God, perfect right standing, 
the justice of God comes up there and, and says, wait a minute, this activity isn't there, so let's get it there. The justice of God demands perfect righteousness. There he is. If you look over at 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, look, if you will, there at verse 21. When the Father looked at the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Son of the Lord, Jesus Christ, he said that's the only answer to man's sin because that's what justice demands. That's why if you look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who what? Knew no sin. He's sinless. That we... Notice that word made. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Made. Take something normal and put it into something that is not its normal status. That we might be, what? Made the righteousness. What is our normal status? Sinners. While we were yet sinners. We loved sin, but yet what did he do? He died for us. Well, what was the natural state of the, of the Lord? He's God. No sin. But he was what? Made to be. So you take a nor natural, normal thing and you make it into something that it's not normally there. And that's really what God did, the Father did here. The only answer to man's sin problem, the only way to redeem human humanity from the power of sin, was that the Son go and do what? Pay the price. So the father spared not his own son. He doesn't, he allowed the full fury of his wrath, of his indignation, of his outrage against sin to flow. Now how more, much more intensely do you need to know that God loves you? Go back to Romans 8 there. Again, Romans 5 verse 8. But God commended his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, he did what? He died for us. We're loving sin. We're, we're wallowing in our sin, and yet what did he do? He loved us, and he took care of the, the problem. So when life hits us, think about the, all right, so in the past, he spared not. He loved us so greatly. He's for us. How? So intensely, so all-consuming that he took care of the penalty of sin for all of humanity. So today when life hits us, don't question if God is for you. That's what mainline Christianity does. But rather what Paul's Getting into our thinking, what, what God, the, the Spirit, threw Paul into your inner man, getting into our thinking, telling us is his dedication to us is so totally and full and intensely that not only did he offer that fully satisfying sacrifice and die for you, but he has that same intense love for you now in the present. He was for us at the cross. He's what? For us today. He will be for us in the future. That pr purpose issue, Colossians 1 there, for him, by him, and for him. So he's there. Go back there to 
8.32. He that spared not his own son. Uh, hopefully you see what Paul's doing here. <laughs> if God be for us, who can be against us? No, notice that question. How do I know God's for me? He did what? He spared not his own son. He poured out his wrath completely and totally. Then, but delivered him up. Isn't that interesting? Delivered him. He comes along and he liver, He doesn't withhold him. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't say, okay, we're going to rethink what we're going to do here. He doesn't look for the loophole. He only knew one answer. He's got to deliver him up for us all. He's got to pay the price. You think about Genesis 22. Run back there to Genesis 22. I, I think about the issue of being delivered up. And you remember... Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham takes Isaac, and they go up on the hill. Look at Genesis twenty-two twelve. He goes up on that hill to crucify his son, to lay Isaac out. Now, what does Abraham know? He knows about resurrection life. He believes that. He also knows that Isaac is the seed. So what does he know? Well, he, tell, he tells those guys... Verse 5, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and what? Come again to you. What does he know? He knows if I go up here and kill my only son, the seed, what's God got to do? Resurrect him because he's the seed, and we're not, <laughs> he hadn't even married and had kids yet. So he says, hey, look, we're, and Abraham knows he doesn't have a, a ram or a lamb, or he off we go. Now look at verse 12. Abraham, by the way, Isaac willingly is bound. There's no argument here by, Abraham, by Isaac to, to, hey, Dad, why are you tying me up? He literally helps him get up on the altar. I mean, Abraham's an old man. Lift up his boy. Great picture of Calvary. We understand that now. When this is happening, they don't think about Calvary. Because of Paul's revelation, we look back and we say, ah, there it is. Look at verse 12. And he said, the angel of the Lord talking here, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I, knowest, I know that thou fearest God, seeing, now here it is, thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. He did what? He delivered him up. He did not withhold him. He didn't, he, he led him to the place of death. He led him to the place of wrath. No mercy. Go back to Romans 8. He doesn't take him and say, hang on a minute. <laughs> Wait a second. You know, time out, time out. You know, fourth quarter, 30 seconds left, time out. No, he doesn't do that. The father says, take him, pour it out. He delivers him, spares him not, delivers him. But then he also does something else in verse 32. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He does something else. He has freely, that's the word, 
uh, you know, he, how shall he not with him also freely give us? Notice, how shall he not, what? With him. In life in Christ, with Christ, for Christ. Christ is at center of the purpose. He's the center of everything. What does he say? Freely. He has freely given us all things. Now, the all things here are not life things, you know. <laughs> I bought that new truck. You know why I bought that? You know how I found that new truck? I was online. Actually, it popped up in my Facebook feed because I have been looking. Uh, and uh, every time I would find a truck, I would inquire on availability. Oh, we just sold it. Like, oh. And then, or... Well, it's not that price now. It's, you know, not 50, it's 65. Well, okay, forget it, <laughs> you know. Or have to contact them. Hey, how much is this truck you've got advertised? Oh, it's, it's amazing, the price gouging, not gouging, but just the pricing out there. It's just unreal. The, he didn't give me that. It, by the way, it wasn't free either, okay? <laughs> All right, you got a monthly payment now, okay? It wasn't free. It's that's not the all things here. The, the all things here are the things that we're dealing with in the passage. The purpose. Calvary. The all things will be developed out. And what, is he, what, did he, what does his grace give us? And when he says freely, that's that free gift principle. That's talking about his grace. So not only does he spare him not and deliver him Calvary, but then his grace got involved. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, verses that we know. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of, him, not of works lest any man should boast. That issue of the Gift. Based upon the free gift principle, again, we didn't earn eternal glory. We didn't do anything to get an eternal justification. We didn't do a law. We don't have a rigid code. But rather, he can do what? He comes in and he take he he does he so intensely loved you back here that he the offer of Calvary was a free gift. So guess what today's offer of free gift? Same thing. You, you know, there's not a code. You know, we, we have folks that, actually we have a, a, quite a few folks that are sick um, over the week. I've, I've been alerted to, you know, God didn't say, I'm going to freely make you all sick. How'd they get sick? Common to man. Things going around. Okay? Whatever it is. Boom. There it is. He doesn't say, that's not what he's talking about. He's like, look, guys, the mentality. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings. We're complete in him. That's all gift freely. It's that gift principle. If you come over to Philippians 1, here's literally what, again, notice we went to Ephesians and we went to we're in Philippians. We went over there to 2 Corinthians. Paul in Romans is laying in the groundwork. The details to fill in some of the, the groundwork is coming in our understanding. Look at Philippians 1, verse 29. Here's the divine perspective. 
For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, okay? Spared not his son, delivered him up. You trusted Christ at Calvary. But also to suffer for his sake, having, seen, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Notice that. But also to do what? Suffer for his sake. And that's where we're headed in Romans 8. That issue of suffering. There's the divine perspective to have. Look, look at how he loved me. Look at what he did for me. He spared not his son. He delivered him up. He made that offer a free gift. So what do I have today? I have his equipping. I have his resources given to me and who I am in Christ. In my identity in Christ, I'm dead to sin. Sin no longer has a grip on me. I'm a free, you know, uh, dead man. They're free from any entanglements of life. So if I'm dead to sin, then I'm free from that entanglement in life. That's who I am in Christ. But I'm dead so that I can be alive unto him. I can go. We'll see when we get into Romans 12 about that living sacrifice. What a weird concept that is to sit here and say, wait a minute, I'm dead to sin, but yet I'm to be a living sacrifice. I'm alive. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. How does a dead man get alive all of a sudden here? What's going on here? Then he says in chapter 7, hey, we're going to, not only did I take care of your sin problem and I justified you, first five chapters, now I'm going to set you free from its grip on your life so you can go and live and be. And by the way, when you do that, don't go live back under a law or a rigid code or something where you can't perform to. Live under the issues of grace because you're dead to the law. Then in chapter 8, we've seen it. We're dead to the flesh. How does that work out? Well, we have a power center given to us, a power source in the Holy Spirit. We've been given a ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's going to come along, and he identifies us as sons, adults in the family. Let's have proper thinking about this, not children thinking. The, the, you know, the little guy in the back room back there, he's playing with toys and over here doing and drooling, you know. I shouldn't say that because I started drooling here, you know. But you get as, but you get in and you become an adult and you look at things and you make adult decisions and you join the family and have a proper conversation. Why? Because you got this work, this power center of the spirit. And he says, listen, you're going to stay here. You got a job to do you, here on the earth. You're an ambassador. And this is what's going to happen. You're going to suffer. And when you suffer, you have been given a hope, you've been given a helper, and you've been given resources to know that when things in life get bad, because they're going to get bad, guess what? I'm not against you. I'm for you. I want to see you succeed. I want to see you have success. And it's all going to be on a grace principle, free gift principle. I'm not going to come in and change the circumstances. I'm not going to come in and move this that way. Come over to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, verses we're very familiar with. But I want you to look at verse 17. You see, you trusted in the free grift principle when it came to your past, your justification. So now in the present, guess what you need to trust in? The free gift principle. Same thing. Look at 2 Timothy 3, look at verse 17. That the man of God may be 
what? Perfect. That issue of maturity. How do you know that? Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Completely, fully, wholly. It's coming from the inside out. Perfect. Not in that you don't sin or mess up, because we all do. It's about maturity. It's about being sons. Next hour, we're going to look at creation, uh, the natural creation. And in a couple weeks, we're going to look at, we're going to get up back up into the angels. And we're going to see that when God created creation and he created creatures, he wants them to be sons, adults. That's who he wants running his universe, heaven and earth, is adults. So you got the sons of son thing going through, uh, sonship, they call it. Moving through the, the scheme here, how does the man of God mature? Well, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So what do I have to have? I got to have the word, got to have the proper word. And then I've got to understand that it's profitable. It's one thing to say I've got it and it sits on the shelf and collects dust. We were up here yesterday, hung the new overhead, and uh, when we moved the tile, there was a lot of stuff hit the floor, you know, from up there, the, the insulation and the dust, see. you got to know that it's profitable, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? Where are we headed? What are we looking for? We're looking to have our, gal- our, our thinking galvanized, crystallized into looking in the moment. Go back to Romans 8. Looking at the moment and saying, you know what? I trusted his word about my past. Sin, that he took care of it, that he paid for it. I'm trusting his word about the future, his eternal purpose. So... I need to trust him about my present as well. And how do I do that? I do it from the resources of the spirit working in my inner man through his word. So then where do I need to spend my time? In his word. Follow that? That's what Paul's getting at. But he starts, he's for us. How do I know that? Man, look at Calvary. Look at what he did at Calvary for you. You trust Christ. The moment you trust Christ, that little acronym, CRIBS, the Holy Spirit goes to work. You're blessed with all spiritual blessings. You're complete in Christ. But you get circumcised with the circumcision without hands. You're, you're re, uh, regenerated. Your old dead soul now becomes alive. I'm sorry, your spirit. He energizes. He he regenerates your spirit so there's a communication avenue then he indwells you then he baptizes you that issue of identification then he seals you the issue of security he does all that the moment you looked at calvary and said i need a savior and there he is look at that and you know what it was it's all freely given to you it's a free gift you didn't do anything he gave it to you go back to romans 8 if you're not there So how intensely does God love me? Man, look at Calvary. It's fascinating. Dad one time said years ago, I was talking to him, and he said, just remember, take everything back to the cross because that's where the Father goes every time. Back to Calvary. 
back to Calvary. Back to, how do, but God commended his love toward us. Oh, I want to have the love of God reign in my life. Where did he go? Where does he display his love? Calvary. And it's a free gift. But look at verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Now we have an against us show up. He's for us. How intensely does he love us? Look at Calvary. Man, look at the past. Look at what he's doing with you in the future. But now we have a charge. Verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? Verse 35. Who shall separate? So we've got a challenge, a condemn, and a separation. We have a, what, an against us. Who can be against us? Here it is. Now, when he says in verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. When he says, who shall lay anything to the charge? That issue of the charge, that's the, that is an, an issue of a legal indictment against our status our position in Christ. What are the charges laid? Okay? There's an attempt to challenge our position in Christ. That's what the adversary is doing, going to do, one of the tactics. He knows that he can't. Come over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'll give you an illustration of this. And this is just an illustration, but it's something that's here, so evidently it can happen. It's fascinating. I hear people say, oh, that'll never happen to me. Well, you know what? It happened to some people a little bit better off than you, spiritually. <laughs> you know, Ephesians 4 over there, verse uh, 17, I think it is, when they're going to walk after other Gentiles walk. Guess what? If it can happen to that great church at Ephesus, where Paul spent three years with them, and, they, and some of them have drifted off into walking like the heathen walk, then guess what can happen to you? Same thing. Look at 1 Timothy 5, just to kind of illustrate this. So this is a challenge, a legal language, a legal indictment, and an attempt to, cha to challenge our place, our position in Christ. 1 Timothy 5, verse 14. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, now watch, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Now, by the way, you know what happens with verse 14? This is, where, this is one of those verses that the, the feminists and the women people say, see, look, the Bible's you know, male chauvinist here, because what are the, what are the young ladies to be do? Bear, be, be barefoot and pregnant and in the kitchen. <laughs> And that's not what he's talking about at all, actually. Okay? But notice the end of verse 14. Give none occasion to the adversary to what? Notice that word, speak, reproachfully. Who's going to file the charge against us, against the elect of God? The adversary does. Where does he do it? He goes into the courtroom before the judge. You, you, you remember back there where Joshua is pulled before the court and Satan stands there and it's an indictment against Israel and he says, that's dirty, that they're, they're mine, they belong to me. 
And the judge says, nope, take him away. Take him away. Change his clothes. They're literally mine. Notice what's happening here. Now watch verse 15. For some are already turned aside after Satan. Think about this. The adversary, Satan, is challenging. He sends a challenge. He files the charge against our position and who we are in Christ. But he, he is trying to speak reproachfully, to speak against us. The adversary knows that he can't get you out of Christ, but what can he go and do now? He can speak against your behavior. He can come up and say, wait a second, you're a blood-bought believer and you act like that? Wait a second. You say that you believe in Christ died for your sins and you believe in grace and you believe in right division and yet you speak like that? That's why Paul would say, let your good not be evil spoken of. That's why he would say, let's be honest before all men. Let's have those action things be our behavior. He'll say in Titus, adorn the doctrine. Make the doctrine look good. We've been looking in Ephesians 3. What are we to do? We're to make all men see. What is the adversary doing? Hey, He's, the adversary is successful in questioning and condemning by a way of reproachful behavior. Look at verse 15. For some are already turned aside. There are some, evidently of the younger women, who are not doing their role here. They're doing something else. And what's Satan saying? Look, see, look at that. And I know what happens. Oh, but Rick, that's law and that's legal. I didn't say this. Paul said this. Because what's the adversary doing? He's looking for a way in. That's why when Paul would say, silly women laden with sins, everybody, oh, look at Brother Paul. No, how does he get in? He's looking for a way in so that he can speak reproachfully. Come back over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So we need to be careful not to supply the adversary with ammunition to be used against us, to be used against our position. So we have to be careful not to do what? Not to behave and to live and to act, act in some way where the adversary can use it to say, hey, wait a minute, you are this? That guy doesn't act like that. Look at 2 Corinthians 2. They have uh, verse, uh, the first 10 verses here, 11 verses, Paul is rebuking the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5, he told them to kick a guy out. They wouldn't do it. They finally do it. Now that that guy has, well, verse 6, sufficient to such a man as this punishment, which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. So evidently he goes out, but he does what? He remedies the situation. 
He's wanting to come back in, but they won't let him back in now. So the Corinthians got messed up. But look at verse 10. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything, to whom I forgive it, for your sakes forgive I it in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. The issue of a lack of forgiveness in the local assembly allowed Satan to do what? Get an advantage. Come in and speak reproachfully against that church at Corinth. So when you come back here to Romans 8, who shall lay anything to the charge? The, the, the picture here is about our behavior. There's already some in bad behavior. And you have to remember the adversary can never change who we are in Christ, but by the way of our behavior, not walking as who we are in Christ, not walking in the Spirit, not living. So think about in, in connection with that in Romans 8. We're in the present sufferings. We're understanding our position, our identity, and yet our knee-jerk reaction is, is, okay, Lord, what are you teaching me? Okay, Lord, you're against me. What did I do to you? What did I do to offend you? Why? Why? You know, why me, Lord? What have I ever done? Who deserve just one? You know, why me? What? And yet, that's, not, that's a victim. And Paul says, no, that's not your reaction. Your reaction is, is I know that God is for me. Look at Calvary. Look at what he plans on doing in the future. I know he's for me now, and I'm going to walk and live where I'm supposed to be. I'm going to do, and, you know, again, well, what if I don't know what to do? Then you got the book to figure it out. That's, that's that first word of 2 Timothy 2.15, study. You got to get in, figure it out. Say, hey, this is what, and that's what he's getting at here because there's going to be a charge that's coming. You think about that list in verse 35, the issue of the sword and famine and nakedness. There's things that are going to come. You get over in verse 38 and 39 in those spiritual, uh, supernatural events and activities that they're watching and looking, and what they're looking for is a way to speak reproachfully. You see, folks, our lives are always being evaluated, whether we like it or not, because Satan is looking for, the adversary is looking for a way to lay a charge. Now, it's an interesting thing in verse 33, 833. Who can lay a charge against, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. So the against us is there. But now watch Paul take that against us and literally prove how much God is for you and how much he loves you. Because he says, who can lay anything against anything to the charge of well, who? God's elect. Well, who is that? See? Now, I know what mainline Christianity does with it, but what are we doing here? You know, stay out of that mess. Stay in the scripture. Because what Paul's going to say here is, listen, this charge is of no consequence to you. When someone comes up, when the adversary comes up, and he's going to speak reproachfully, it doesn't change how much God is for you. 
And the first point is, it's because of who's being charged. Who's being charged? God's elect. So then that issue of election comes in. And who are the elect? Well, what does verse 28 say? And we know that all things work together for good to them that are loved of God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That's why we spent time there. Who's the elect? It's the ones that are called according to his purpose. It's the ones who God is going to use to accomplish his plan, his purpose. Ephesians 1, verse, and then here in the context, verse 29 and 30, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. By the way, how are you called? By his gospel. And uh, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Again, all past tense, all done. The moment of, of salvation, of justification. By the way, election in your Bible is not about salvation. Never is it about salvation. It's always about service. And God has chosen you and I, Ephesians 1, 4, before the foundation of the He chose the church, the body of Christ, to serve him in his plan and purpose in the filling up of the heavenly places. And he says, you're the elect. So the charge is against the wrong people. Because God has already determined us to be something, to be useful to be his people that are going to be used to accomplish his purpose and his plan. So when he says, who can lay anything against, uh, who, who shall lay anything to the charge, who's going to do that? The adversary is. He's looking to speak reproachfully of your behavior, of you not living in Romans 8, but rather living out over there in Israel's doctrine, I guess, or some made-up man's theology. Not, so he's looking for an angle, but he says, Paul says, hang on a minute. <laughs> You're God's elect. You're the called. You're somebody special here. So guess what? The charge isn't going to stick because of who you are in Christ. Because you're the people, you're the very ones that are going to be used to accomplish his purpose. You see that? Then he says, it is God that justifieth. Oh my goodness, if that's not good enough, here's another kicker. He's God that, what, justifieth. So the one who's bring the adversary brings the charge, where does he bring the charge, who does he bring the charge to? The judge, God. God's the judge. First five chapters in Romans, we, Paul pulls us into that courtroom, and Paul prosecutes the sinner, lays out the case, and God sits there as what? The just and justifier. He sits there as the judge. So literally, the charge is one brought against the wrong group of people, but now it's being brought in front of the wrong person, the wrong judge. Because the same judge that's going to sit there and look at man and say sinner guilty is the same one that looked over at his son and spared him not and delivered him up and said, you are guilty, but he's going to pay the sentence. You follow, remember that. See how that stuff in Romans is just building here. The very, the one, the charge, the accuser brings the charge to the very one who 
ends up justifying those that believe him. He is the just and justifier. So Paul says, dude, you're going to have, there's, gonna, there's an adversary, there's an enemy, and he's going to bring a charge against you, but don't worry about it. It doesn't change God being for you. Because that's what we think, isn't it? God's against us now. His justice has already been satisfied. Think about that. What does Romans 5.1 say? Therefore, being justified, being, that's who we are, we have what? Peace with God. Thank you. We have peace with God. Peace! That doesn't mean he's what? Against us. We have, he's for us. So when you're sitting there and something pops up, relax. One, it's, you're the wrong person for the charge to be, hey, you know, you're not guilty. You're, you've been justified. You've been declared righteous. And the guy that declared you righteous, by the way, is the one that's going to listen to the charge, and he's just going to dismiss the charges because you are already justified. So if that is true in the past, and it is true in the future, then it's true in the present as well. And that's really what Paul's after here. That's why Paul is bringing all this back up. It's already settled that God is on your side. He wants you to be victorious. He has equipped you he has given you the, necessar the, 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 the necessary resources to win. He's for you. It's settled. And the proof is look at what he did back there at Calvary. Look at what he does when the accuser comes of the brethren. When he comes, and what does God say? It's done. And Isaiah back there, uh, Israel is, I'll have to find it. Uh, give me just a second. Israel is uh, being challenged. All right, well, I thought it was right there. Maybe it's 49. Yeah, look at Isaiah 49. It's an interesting thing here. Is, this is going to happen to Israel out in the future day, out in the kingdom, and out in the second coming, I should say, setting up the kingdom. In Isaiah 49, verse 24, Isaiah writes, Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the lawful captive delivered? Israel's condition was that they were in captivity to Satan, but they were there how? Lawfully. What had they done? What had God done with Israel? He made a covenant with them. He made a contract with them. And he says, if you obey my contract, my com commands, my word, then I will bless you. But if you don't obey, I'm going to curse you. And you know what Satan says? Let's watch this happen. And he just stands there. Israel has what? Broken the contract. 
So Israel, or Israel, Satan files suit in the law, in the courtroom, and he says, they are lawfully mine. They're captive. They belong to me, lawfully, legally, because your word said. Now, if your word is not true, then let's get to that, but you say your word's true, and is God's word true? Yes. It's truth, I should say. And he says, yeah. Now, watch what God does. But thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer and the Mighty One. Of Jacob. Three titles there of the Lord. The adversaries got him in court. The Lord stands up and says, I've already, I, I will contend with him that contended with thee. And if you let your eye draw across the page in, in Isaiah 50, he's right there, verse number 8, contending with the adversary, and that's Calvary. He's talking about Calvary. What did Calvary do? Calvary set Israel free of that legal, lawful captivity. Because what what does his payment do? It justifies the requirement of the agreement. Because if they broke the agreement, they could fix it, couldn't they? Through what? Sacrifice. There's the sacrifice. You and I come along, Paul says, same thing. Just applied a little differently, applied in grace. We don't have a law, uh, we don't have a covenant with God, but God's word to us says what? You trust me, I'll take care of all of that, and you'll, you'll have the best lawyers in town, because then no one can speak against you. You follow that? That, that what he did back here is what helps us here. Now, in 834, it's time to quit. In Romans 8, verse 34, who is he that condemneth? We'll have to get that next time. Because what Paul's going to do now is he's going to march us into a more intense suffering. And that's going to be that issue of suffering for his sake. We suffer because of our connection to creation, the corruption in creation. And now he's going to move us into the suffering uh, in that present uh, position of who we are in Christ and we'll have to get that next time okay I hope you see what Paul's doing here if God be for us is he for you yes how do I know man look at Calvary look at what he's done for me because what he did there so intensely so lovingly so fully so completely is how he's dealing with me now in time how he's equipping me to get through the present suffering, okay? All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your, the study, the look here into the scriptures, to have our thinking uh, crystallized into how we ought to properly walk and how we are to properly live in the details of life. In your name we pray, amen.